Chapter Ten of Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter Ten: Two Years of Darkness. With the opening of the year 1776, Daniel and Squire Boone were employed for several weeks as hunters or assistants to a party of surveyors sent by the Transylvania Company to the falls of the Ohio, in the vicinity of which Henderson and his friends had taken up 70,000 acres of land. They met no Indians and saw plenty of game but returned to find that the settlers were indignant because of this wholesale preemption of the proprietors of the colony in a neighborhood where it was now felt the chief city in Kentucky was sure to be planted. In response to this clamor, Henderson promised that hereafter, in that locality, only small tracts should be granted to individuals, and that a town should at once be laid out at the falls but the scanty supply of powder and provisions and the company's growing troubles with the virginia assembly prevented the execution of this project in the spring newcomers everywhere appeared in order to please the people of harrodsburg now the largest settlement who were disposed to be critical the company's land office was moved thither and it at once entered upon a flourishing business not only did many virginians and carolinians come in on horseback over the wilderness road as the route through cumberland gap was now styled but hundreds also descended the ohio in boats from the new settlements on the monongahela and from those farther east in pennsylvania while the horsemen of the wilderness road generally settled in transylvania those journeying by boat were chiefly interested in the crown lands north of the kentucky through these they ranged at will building rude pens half-faced cabins and log huts as convenience dictated and planting small crops of corn in order to preempt their claims the majority however after making sometimes as many as twenty such claims each often upon land already surveyed on militia officers warrants returned home at the close of the season seeking to sell their fictitious holdings to actual settlers of course, the unscrupulous conduct of these claim-jumping speculators led to numerous quarrels. John Todd of Harrodsburg wrote to a friend, I am afraid to lose sight of my house, lest some invader should take possession. It was difficult, even for those who came to settle, to get down to hard work during those earliest years. Never was there a more beautiful region than the Kentucky wilderness. Both old and new settlers were fond of roaming through this wonderland of forests and glades and winding rivers, where the nights were cool and refreshing, and the days filled with harmonies of sound and sight and smell. Hill and valley, timberland and thicket, meadow and prairie, grasslands and cane brake, these abounded on every hand, in happy distribution of light and shadow the soil was extremely fertile there were many open spots fitted for immediate cultivation the cattle ranges were of the best for nowhere was cane more abundant game was more plentiful than men's hopes had ever before conceived of turkeys bears deer and buffaloes it seemed for a time as if the supply must always far excelled any possible demand it is small wonder that the imaginations of the pioneers were fired with dreams of the future that they saw in fancy great cities springing up in this new world of the west and wealth pouring into the laps of those who could first obtain a foothold 
Thus, in that beautiful spring of 1776, did Kentuckians revel in the pleasures of hope, and cast to the winds all thought of the peril and toil by which alone can man conquer a savage-haunted wilderness. But the dark cloud foretold at the Watauga Treaty soon settled upon the land. Incited by British agents, for the revolution was now on, the Cherokees on the south and the Shawnees and Mingos on the north declared war upon the American borderers. The Kentuckians were promptly warned by messengers from the east. The cabiners, as claim speculators, were called by actual settlers. The wandering fur traders, most of whom were shabby rascals, whose example corrupted the savages and whose conduct often led to outbreaks of race hostility, and the irresponsible hunters who were recklessly killing or frightening off the herds of game. All of these classes began, with the mutterings of conflict, to draw closer to the settlements, while many hurried back to their old homes, carrying exaggerated reports of the situation. Meanwhile, opposition to the Transylvania proprietors was fast developing. The settlers in the Harrodsburg neighborhood held a convention in June and sent Colonel George Rogers Clark and Captain John Gabriel Jones as delegates to the Virginia Convention with a petition to that body to make Kentucky a county of Virginia. This project was bitterly opposed by Henderson, but upon the adoption by Congress, in July of the Declaration of Independence, there was small chance left for the recognition of any proprietary government. When the new Virginia legislature met in the autumn, the petition of the inhabitants of Kentucky was granted, and a county government organized. David Robinson was appointed by County Lieutenant John Bowman, Colonel Anthony Bledsoe, and George Rogers Clark, majors, and Daniel Boone, James Herod, John Todd, and Benjamin Logan, captains. It was not until July that the Kentuckians fully realized the existence of an Indian war. During that month, several hunters, surveyors, and travelers were killed in various parts of the district. The situation promised so badly that Colonel William Russell, of the Holston Valley, commandant of the southwestern Virginia militia, advised the immediate abandonment of Kentucky. Such advice fell upon unheeding ears in the case of men like Boone and his companions, although many of the less valorous were quick to retire beyond the mountains. On Sunday, the 17th of July, an incident occurred at Boonesboro which created widespread consternation. Jemima, the second daughter of Daniel Boone, aged 14 years, together with two girlfriends, Betsy and Fanny Calloway, 16 and 14 respectively, were paddling in a canoe upon the Kentucky. Losing control of their craft in the swift current, not over a quarter of a mile from the settlement, they were swept near the north bank, when five Shawnees braves, hiding in the bushes, waded out and captured them. The screams of the girls alarmed the settlers, who sallied forth in hot pursuit of the kidnappers. The mountain men, under Colonel Calloway, father of two of the captives, pushed forward to lower Blue Licks, hoping to cut off the Indians as they crossed the Licking River on their way to the Shawnee towns in Ohio, whither it was correctly supposed they were fleeing. Boone headed the footmen, who followed closely on the trail of the fugitives, which had been carefully marked by the girls, who, with the self-possession of true borderers, furtively scattered broken twigs and scraps of clothing as they were hurried along through the forest by their grim captors. 
After a two-day's chase, Boone's party caught up with the unsuspecting savages some thirty-five miles from Boonesborough, and by dint of a skillful dash recaptured the young women unharmed. Two of the Shawnees were killed, and the others fled into the woods. Callaway's horsemen met no foe. Although few other attacks were reported during the summer or autumn, the people were in a continual state of apprehension, neglected their crops, and either huddled in the neighborhood of the settlements, or stations as they were called, or abandoned the country altogether. In the midst of this uneasiness, Floyd wrote to his friend Preston in Virginia, urging that help be sent to the distressed colony. They all seem deaf to anything we can say to dissuade them. I think more than three hundred men have left the country since I came out, and not one has arrived except a few cabiners down the Ohio. I want to return as much as any man can do, but if I leave the country now, there is scarcely one single man who will not follow the example. When I think of the deplorable condition a few helpless families are likely to be in, I conclude to sell my life as dearly as I can in their defense, rather than make an ignominious escape. Seven stations had now been abandoned, Houston's on the present site of Paris, Hinkson's on the Licking, Bryan's on the Elkhorn, Lee's on the Kentucky, Harrod's, or the Boiling Point Settlement, Whitley's and Logan's. But three remained occupied, McClellan's, Harrodsburg, and Boonesboro. Up to this time, none of the Kentucky stations had been fortified. There had been some unfinished work at Boonesboro, but it was soon allowed to fall into decay. Work was now resumed at all three of the occupied settlements. This consisted simply of connecting the cabins, which faced an open square, by lines of palisades. It was only at McClellan's, however, that even this slender protection was promptly completed. At Boonesboro and Harrodsburg, the work, although but a task of a few days, dragged slowly, and was not finished for several months. It was next to impossible for Boone and the other militia captains to induce men to labor at the common defenses in time of peace. Great popular interest was taken by the people of the Carolinas, Virginia, and Pennsylvania in the fate of the Kentucky settlements, whither so many prominent borderers from those states had moved. The frantic appeals for help sent out by Floyd, Logan, and McGarry, and expressed in person by George Rogers Clark, awakened keen sympathy, but the demands of Washington's army were now so great, in battles for national liberty upon the Atlantic coast, that little could be spared for the western settlers. During the summer, a small supply of powder was sent out by Virginia to Captain Boone. In the autumn, Herod and Logan rode to the Holston, and obtained from the military authorities a pack-horse load of lead, and in the closing days of the year, Clark arrived at Limestone, now Maysville, on the Ohio, with a boatload of powder and other stores, voted to the service of Kentucky by the Virginia Assembly. He had experienced a long and exciting voyage from Pittsburgh with this precious consignment, and about thirty of the settlers aided him in the perilous enterprise of transporting it overland to the stations on the Kentucky. While the ammunition was supposed to be used for defense, the greater part of it was necessarily spent in obtaining food. Without the great profusion of game, the inhabitants must have starved. Although several large crops of corn were raised, and some wheat, these were as yet insufficient for all. Early in 1777, Indian signs began to multiply. 
McClellan's was now abandoned, leaving Boonesborough and Harrodsburg the only settlements maintained, except perhaps prices on the Cumberland, although Logan's station was reoccupied in February. The number of men now in the country fit for duty did not exceed a hundred and fifty. In March, the fighting men met at their respective stations and organized under-commissioned officers. Hitherto, all military operations in Kentucky had been voluntary, headed by such temporary leaders as the men chose from their own number. During the greater part of the year, the palisaded stations were frequently attacked by the savages, Shawnees, Cherokees, and Mingos, in turn or in company. Some of these sieges lasted through several days, taxing the skill and bravery of the inhabitants to their utmost. Indian methods of attacking forts were far different from those that would be practiced by white men. Being practically without military organization, each warrior acted largely on his own behalf. His subject was to secrete himself, to kill his enemy, and if possible to bear away his scalp as a trophy every species of cover was taken advantage of trees stumps bushes hillocks stones furnished hiding places feints were made to draw the attention of the garrison to one side while the main body of the besiegers hurled themselves against the other having neither artillery nor scaling ladders they frequently succeeded in effecting a breach by setting fire to the walls pretending to retreat they would lull the defenders into carelessness when they would again appear from ambush picking off those who came out for water to attend to crops and cattle or to hunt for food often they exhibited a remarkable spirit of daring especially when making a dash to secure scalps destroying crops cattle hogs and poultry stealing the horses for their own use burning the outlying cabins and guarding the trails against the possible relief they sought to reduce the settlers to starvation and thus make them an easy prey every artifice known to besiegers was skillfully practised by these crafty keen-eyed quick-witted wilderness fighters who seldom showed mercy only when white men aggressively fought them in their own manner could they be overcome in the last week of April, while Boone and Kenton were heading a sortie against a party of Shawnees besieging Boonesborough, the whites stumbled into an ambuscade, and Boone was shot in an ankle, the bone being shattered. Kenton, with that cool bravery for which this tall, vigorous backwoodsman was known throughout the border, rushed up and, killing a warrior whose tomahawk was lifted above the fallen man, picked his comrade up in his arms and desperately fought his way back into the enclosure. It was several months before the captain recovered from this painful wound, but from his room he directed many a day and night defense, and laid plans for the scouting expeditions which were frequently undertaken throughout the region in order to discover signs of the lurking foe. Being the larger settlement, Harrodsburg was more often attacked than Boonesborough, although simultaneous sieges were sometimes in progress, thus preventing the little garrisons from helping each other at both stations the women soon became the equal of the men fearlessly taking turns at the portholes from which little puffs of white smoke would follow the sharp rifle cracks whenever a savage had revealed itself from behind bush or tree when not on duty as marksmen women were melting their pewter plates into bullets loading the rifles and handing them to the men caring for the wounded and cooking whatever food might be obtainable during a siege food was gained only by stealth and at great peril some brave volunteer would escape into the woods by night and after a day spent in hunting far away from hostile camps return 
if possible under cover of darkness, with what game he could find. It was a time to make heroes or cowards of either men or women. There was no middle course. Amid this spasmodic hurly-burly, there was no lack of marrying and giving in marriage. One day in early August, 1776, Betsy Calloway, the eldest of the captive girls, was married at Boonesborough to Samuel Henderson, one of the rescuing party, the first wedding in Kentucky. Daniel Boone, as justice of the peace, tied the knot. A diarist of the time has this record of a similar Harrisburg event. July 9, 1777. Lieutenant Lynn married. Great merriment. At each garrison, whenever not under actual siege, half the men were acting as guards and scouts, while the others cultivated small patches of corn within sight of the walls. But even this precaution sometimes failed of its purpose. For instance, one day in May, two hundred Indians suddenly surrounded the cornfield at Boonesborough, and there was a lively skirmish before the planters could reach the fort. Thus the summer wore away. In August, Colonel Bowman arrived with a hundred militiamen from the Virginia frontier. A little later, forty-eight horsemen came from the Yadkin country to Boone's relief, making so brave a display as they emerged from the tangled woods and in open order filed through the gates of the palisade that some Shawnees watching the procession from a neighboring hill fled into Ohio with the startling report that two hundred long-knife warriors had arrived from Virginia. In October, other Virginians came, to the extent of a hundred expert riflemen, and late in the autumn the valiant Logan brought in from the Holston as much powder and lead as four pack-horses could carry, guarded by a dozen sharpshooters, thus ensuring a better prospect for food. With these important suppliers and reinforcements at hand, the settlers were inspired by new hope. Instead of waiting for the savages to attack them, they thenceforth went in search of the savages, killing them wherever seen, thus seeking to outgeneral the enemy. These tactics quite disheartened the astonished tribesmen, and the year closed with a brighter outlook for the weary Kentuckians. It had been a time of constant anxiety and watchfulness. The settlers were a handful in comparison with their vigilant enemies. But little corn had been raised, the cattle were practically gone, few horses were now left, and on the 12th of December, Bowman sent word to Virginia that he had only two months' supply of bread for 200 women and children, many of whom were widows and orphans. As for clothing, there was little to be had, although from the fibers of nettles a rude cloth was made, and deerskins were commonly worn. End of chapter 10 Recording by William Tomko